everyone. It's Sean Gibbons. Welcome back to my basement for the final day of the year, at least the final day that we're going to be together live. Everything that we've done together, as I hope you all know by now, is going to be available up on this platform where you're seeing me. Uh, a lot of it already is. So if in the next hour or two, I hope you're going to stick around for what we have just ahead. But in between, if you want to catch up on stuff or you want to come back to it uh, over the weekend, we'd invite you to do so. Really, everything up here live uh, or on tape, I guess, right? Uh, and then we will eventually, in case you're wondering, so I've got a few questions about this, we will make everything, everything is going to be up on YouTube so anybody and everybody can avail themselves of it. Just give us a couple of weeks to make that happen, but that, that, that is our plan. Uh, I am incredibly grateful and excited to bring you all back. Um, it would be a mistake for me to ignore what's been happening while I've been in my basement, what's been happening in our country this week. It's a lot. And I know, and hopefully you saw the email I just sent to you, one of the things that I take some hope and comfort in is the idea that this group is together and that we're all seeing what we're seeing and we're feeling what we're feeling. And we understand, and I was just saying this to all the folks who are gonna be with us in a moment for the equity panel, that if you can see it and you can name it, then you can change it. And I was reminded yesterday in a conversation I had, can't remember now if it was before or after that amazing conversation with Nicole and Stacy, Dr. Jones and I were having a little chat and he reminded me, because I was reflecting on, on all that's happening around the world and, and my deep distress, and I think everybody probably shares about the ruling um, or the lack of justice for Breonna Taylor and her family, which is hard to understand. Uh, he reminded me of these words, the words of Dr. King, if not us, who? And if not now, when? Uh, you are in for an extraordinary series of conversations today, so I want to get to it. You're either going to be watching the conversation that Berta Downs, our friend from REM, is going to be having with Janine Abrams-McLean and Rebecca DeHart of Fair Count. There's some good news that I can share with you, which is that just overnight there was a judge ruling that the United States Census will continue. And the challenge here is, if I'm not an expert at the courts, I'm sure some of you might be, but you know that that's an initial ruling. There'll probably be a fight moving up through the courts, but suffice to say, right now it looks like the United States Census will uh, proceed through at least the end of October, which is good news because we don't want to leave anybody behind. That has to be who we are. We've talked to Trebian about who do we aspire to be, and I think as a nation, a part of our values is that we leave no one behind, or at least that's who we aspire to be, and that's who we want to be. So that's some good news. So if you're watching that, some good news to take into that conversation. The conversation about equity, I have a feeling is going to be a little bit tougher, but there are some deep lessons to learn from our friends in Atlanta, and we're going to get to that in just a quick minute. A little bit later today, you will have Susan Vandergriff, whose story is just extraordinary. Uh, she is a woman who lives in the southeastern part of Tennessee. Uh, I'm a Virginian by birth, and so I know that sits down in the corner of our state, uh, that area where she works in. It's Chattanooga and, and Appalachia. Uh, and she has just done some extraordinary work, having some conversations that I actually was talking to my wife and she's like, we're still talking about that now? Really? Uh, the work at Step Ahead Chattanooga won the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. Uh, and they, they forged some conversations and built some bridges uh, on some subjects around women's health that were considered taboo. So if you're interested, I highly recommend making some time for that now or at some point later if you're not able to be with us. And then we'll close out the day with Joy Hargill, who is the U.S. Poet Laureate. She is a citizen of the Creek Muscogee Nation. She's gonna have a conversation with one of my favorite humans, Rebecca Arno, former network board chair. Uh, and I would like to, if you'll indulge me for one quick minute to take us out with a, a piece from Joy. I opened this week with one of these and I wanna close this out. It's quick, so indulge me. I saw somebody on Twitter 
complaining, but you know what? Listen, take a breath. This is good for you. This poem by Joy is called Road. We stand first in our minds, and then we toddle from hand to furniture. Soon we are walking away from the house and lands of our ancestral creator gods to the circles of friends, of schooling, of work, making families and worlds of our own. We make our way through storm and sun. We walk side by side or against each other. The last road will be taken alone. There might be crowds calling for blood or a curtained window by the leaving bed. It is best not to be afraid. Lift your attention. For the appearance of the next road, it might be through a family of trees, a desert, or rolling waves of sea. It's the ancient road the soul knows. We always remember it when we see it. It beckons at birth. It carries us home. With that, let's go. Hello, welcome. Um, thank you all for joining us today. My name is Tanae Trailer, and I'm with the Candida Fund. Um, you are joining us for the equity panel, A Southern Perspective. Um, this panel is meant to provide um, some Southern insight on equity and how unexpected forms of communications are centering the experiences of black and brown folks here in Atlanta um, we, we are coming to you today with an amazing panel of thought leaders and practitioners and activists who are really thinking through how do we tackle this conversation, but more importantly, how do we dismantle some of the, some of the ways that we've all thought about um, the injustices that plague our society and how do we begin to liberate our thinking? How do we begin to liberate our practices um, with a new front mind frame? I'm super excited to introduce this panel. Um, and we also come to you today and I'll just say personally, I'll take a little bit of um, moderator privilege just to say I'm coming with a heavy heart um, this week as we, not just for Brianna Taylor, who is at the center of, of, of the forefront of my mind and her family, and she's not able to speak on behalf of herself, but all the voiceless, voiceless and, and no longer here, um, black and brown girls that have been taken from our communities, whether it's acts of violence um, at the hands of our folks that are supposed to protect us, or those um, folks are, you know, family, friends, um, strangers, um, for all those brown girls that are out there, like I'm, I'm coming to you today as one, and I'm coming to you today knowing that I'm holding all of that in my, in my heart. And, um, but I'm really excited to, to, to introduce this panel of leaders and I'll start with, um, I'll introduce them and then we'll just go right into the conversation. Um, we have Janelle Williams, who's senior advisor at the Federal Reserve She's also co-founder of the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative. 
We have Heather Infantry, who's the executive director at The Generator. Um, and lastly, we have Rohit Mahatra, which is the founder and executive director of the Center for Civic Innovation. This is an amazing panel. Um, you know, we've, we had a prep conversation as we um, got started and, and I should be, um, I'm forgetting the, one of the most important people, Ernie Suggs, who is, um, as he's a reporter for the AJC and his focus is on race relations. And Ernie is, um, had to be pulled away today to um, report on the Trump visit um, that's gonna be in one of our counties today. So he is sending his um, spirit of, 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 of welcome and, and love, but he, he is definitely um, doing the good work today of being the pool reporter for the AJC and basically the country. So we send our, we send our thoughts to Ernie. Um, as we think about it, and, and one of the things that we talked about in a prep session was how do we begin to frame this conversation around equity, particularly for Atlanta? And we had several iterations of what we wanted to do, but what kept coming up, and you'll see these in the articles, the three articles that were shared um, prior to this session, is this how we branded ourselves as a Southern city um, and how we communicate that and how that not only resonates externally, but how that shows up in this city and in our work. Um, Atlanta has a few taglines. One is a city too busy to hate. Um, most recently, we've heard about our um, the um, the popular um, um, slogan for our, our mayor, whose name is Keisha. Um, so we're always branding ourselves. And, and another way that we've branded ourselves is, is by having an Atlanta way. And many cities have a way, many places have a way, but the Atlanta way in the Southern context has always been around how Atlanta has um, been able to quiet some of the uprising through black and brown private conversations, um, white, I'm sorry, black and white private conversations, those that are had privately to kind of um, make sure that Atlanta stays in its place and particularly black Atlanta stays in its place. We're gonna interrogate that conversation today and we're gonna not talk about just about what is equity and one of our partners talks about this a lot. Equity is not just a what, it's a way and how not only is equity a way but inequity is a way. So as we start this off I'll, I'll begin the conversation with Janelle and Heather and Rohit will weigh in. Um, Janelle can you talk to us a little bit about the tale of two cities that plague Atlanta and the way that our brand may or may not um, explicitly um, share the two tales of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, good morning, everyone. And thank you so much, Communications Network, for inviting me to participate in the discussion. Thank you to me for really helping to create an authentic but long overdue discussion, which we hope has a deep bias to action. Um, Clearly, my name is Janelle Williams. I'm with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, but clearly I'm a daughter of the Deep South. Um, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, but have spent um, almost half of my life in the city of Atlanta. And like many other people across the world, the country, we have come to call Atlanta home. And I think that context is really important as we have a conversation around what does Atlanta really reflect, represent, and stand for? Um, you know, like many of you, we all have heard this narrative of a city too busy to hate. 
and Atlanta has been considered one of America's greatest black Mecca. And still nestled within that are other realities. Within our city, we have a city where almost 80% of black children live in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. We are in a city where we have almost one of the highest density of black owned businesses, yet black business value is worth 11 times less than white business value. And I say that because as we have this broad narrative of a city that offers hope and promise, embedded within that are deep systemic issues that lock black children, black families, black communities out of poverty. And understanding that that word black is also not a monolith. Understanding the intersection of class and race and how they compound to create those inequities is important. So I'm glad to have this conversation today, particularly nestled around what does it mean for a narrative? What does it mean for a narrative shift? Because far too long we've romanticized resiliency where we really put the burden of responsibility on people that have been locked out of opportunity without acknowledging the role of other systems that have created this uneven playing field. For far too long, we've put the burden of responsibility on communities that have experienced historic disinvestment. And so I'm interested in being part of a conversation where we interrogate the narrative that we're using to discuss these issues. And we're honest around, you know, the complacency involved in perpetuating some of these issues. Um, and the other thing I just would really love to lift up and why I'm so excited about this conversation is that there is a necessary national shift happening right now and a national narrative around race, racism, the economy, democracy, opportunity, freedom, and hope. But the South has something to say. And how this is pronounced and experienced in the South is persistent and it is real. And I think it's really important, even as we think about these major metropolitan areas, we hold the issue that with almost four in five children, black children in the city, living in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, it is very comparable to what we're seeing in other areas of the deep south. And I think it's really important if we wanna have this national conversation, we pay closer attention to what's happening in the south because the south does have something to say. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm pivoting to kind of, I'm thinking through the, um, the, the spaces and the conversations I've had with Heather recently and just over the years thinking through how she's definitely helped to, she's always been the thinking through how we talk about who and what we are as a city and whether it's using the word non-Black or um, thinking through right now how we insert the conversations around the creatives and the arts. Heather, talk to us about like your what you're seeing, um, can you react to Janelle's um, kind of framing around kind of the, the misconception of the Black Mecca um, and how you're seeing that and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me here. You know, another term that I've been using as, as of late is uh, people of no color too. So I'd like mm. to throw that one out there. Um, yeah, Janelle is speaking to a pervasive problem that we have in our city because Atlanta has always been a majority black um, urban center with a highly visible black population that has done well for itself, right? We've enjoyed many decades of black political leadership. 
We have well-to-do people, the latest being uh, Tyler Perry, who has such a great national platform in terms of the work and success that he's enjoyed, which has really skewed the reality of what it's like for everyday folks in Atlanta. So the duality of this like impoverished neighborhood of black community and then this well-to-do, particularly in the commercial music sector, you know, is at odds with itself, right? And with all of that, Atlanta continues to swap first and second place with being an unequal city. And so much of it has to do with the language and how we tell the story of this city. And I really began to sort of interrogate this with just the data that's being told, right? Even the way that we tell the story about how Black children in certain zip codes have a very difficult time of mitigating poverty. It's rare that we ever speak directly to the culprits for why this exists, right? What are the actual institutions that are at play? And more than institutions, who are the folks that are authoring these policies and these practices? I was in a training yesterday that the uh, Atlanta Regional Commission here in Atlanta was convening around equity. And we went through this animated short video talking about systemic racism. And they were looking specifically at, at redlining as it relates to real estate. Um, and at the conclusion of the video, the narrator says, you know, systemic racism is really hard to pin down because we don't know who to blame for it. So the best that we can do is be aware of our implicit bias. And that is a complete fallacy, right? It's, it's racism and there are people that are engineering the racism and they are reinforcing these policies. And if we can't get to a place in this moment of truth and transformation where we can call people specifically the individuals that are behind this to say, you're doing wrong and you're creating harm, then I don't think we have any chance of actually creating any sort of change or transformation that we're seeking. It's not a matter of like, are you racist? It's really a question of like, how could you not be? Given that since the inception of this country, our foundation was built on it. And so I think that is what leadership in Atlanta, black, white, and other, because even as a black person, I have painfully been made aware of the ways in which I have been very complicit in anti-Blackness. I have been very complicit at silencing Black voices and upholding white supremacist practices that we all need to sort of like take pause and take personal inventory in the ways that we have been shaped and molded because it is essentially the air that we breathe and it starts with how we talk about this work. Heather, I'm curious, I'm, I've spent now 20 years in the field of um, philanthropy and I too have come to very clear realizations around my role in upholding certain systems and I'm and and how and how and even in my best work I've um, had to um, kind of push the institutional way of getting certain work done in philanthropy in Atlanta you've been on the other side of the table um, as a leader in the, in the nonprofit sector. Can you just talk a little bit about ways in which you see these practices show up in um, on the nonprofit practitioner side and not necessarily your specific experiences, but just ways in which people can come aware, become aware of what they're doing. Because sometimes we're blind to it and we just don't know because we're part of the system and we think we're doing good. I think the challenge with philanthropy in the way that we approach it, because we don't really understand the complicated nuance of how things have come to the way that they are because of the way that we tell the story, right? 
um, you're presented with data often about how black folks are faring specifically in Atlanta, how they lag behind in education, uh, in their um, you know, ability to move up the socioeconomic uh, ladder and that sort of things. Their mortality rate, particularly as it, as it compares to their white counterparts. All this data, which creates a very um, sort of imbalanced perspective that one can walk away and think that these these things are sort of like specific and terminal to the black community, right? And that it warrants our charity rather than our investment. If we were to step back and look at the actual practices and policies, which philanthropy rarely does, if we were to look and say, you know, it was this, it was financial institutions at this point in history that made um, very deliberate and intentional decisions to redline communities so that they didn't have access to bank loans and um, real estate agents were uh, marginalizing communities that then became impoverished because they couldn't access you, you know, the diversity of a, a broad tax base to support their communities. Like when we look at those systems, then we begin to shift the conversation to say, it's these policies that are play that have created these data points. And then we place all the emphasis on those policies versus on the outcomes. We have so many terms, right, to talk about Black folks. They're marginalized. They're disenfranchised. They're low income. They're intersectional. And as of late now, they're POC and they're BIPOC. Uh -huh. But white is sort of an enduring reality. And when it comes to philanthropy, the conversation is so one-sided. There is no scrutiny of philanthropy. There's no interrogation as to whether they wait, whether the way that they are deploying their resources has any sort of efficacy, if it's actually tackling the problem. Um, all of the benefits and privileges are bestowed upon those that give them anyway. So the tax benefits, uh, the, 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 the confidentiality that they have, so nobody needs to know about them, that they have all of this power to do what they want. And those of us that are on the receiving end need to just graciously accept, even though oftentimes it's fraught with all sorts of um, bias and racist attitudes. And, and more often than not, it's not what we need. It's not enough. It's not the actual resources that will begin to chip away at the problem. So that power imbalance um, you know, just continues to perpetuate the same old thing. For a city like Atlanta, with as many corporations and as many family foundations, for us to continue lagging behind as this unequal city, something's amiss. So I think this is a great way to talk. <laughs> I, um, Rohit, you have taken in the most difficult time, I think, in our country, um, you are not just thinking of you. One of the things that's happened in Atlanta is that philanthropy has come together to say we want to address um, a rapid response to COVID and deploy resources into the community to help um, you know, mitigate, you know, whether it's the spread or thinking through how can we provide support for food and all these great things that philanthropy has come together to do. Um, but Rohit, you've, you've shined a light on, even in our best intentions, um, we are exacerbating injustice and inequality, even through our benevolence. And can you talk a little bit about how you are articulating in the way that you've gone about, particularly from your seat, um, 
what drew you to this way of, 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 of I don't want to use the word expose, but highlight the inequity and um, how you are working with black and brown voices and white voices to help um, hold philanthropy and others accountable. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the, the question and, and just grateful to be with folks that I consider mentors uh, in this space. I, I, I think uh, for for me, uh, I grew I grew up uh, as the kid of immigrant uh, parents. And so as a in an immigrant household, your obligation is to understand and weave through the history of the country that you're in. And it's so complicated because the first time you hear about that history is through the lens of your parents and your family on like what this country is about and what it's for. Uh, and then you have to learn history in this country to protect your parents uh, because you see them go through pain and you see them go through hurt. I came to this work uh, because I could no longer watch my parents collapsing to the floor uh, in, in absolute pain and, and hurt uh, from how badly this country uh, has treated people who look like them and to watch them blame themselves. And mm. And at the same time, for them to look at their children and tell them that they're excellent. And I grew up uh, coming, my parents came to this country. I was born on the south side of Chicago. I came to Atlanta at a really young age. Uh, and coming here, I didn't know anything but Black excellence because every Black person I was around also had parents who told them that they were excellent and they were the best and they were, they meant everything. I never knew what that meant. And Atlanta is so interesting in that way because unlike other places, uh, you don't have a monolithic view on a Black person. Uh, you got names for people who are, who are Black. Uh, you have the person who helped you out with your science homework, the person who helped you out with your math homework, the person who promised to select you on the basketball team. Like that is, uh, those are my friends that I grew up with. And I don't uh, call them the names that uh, philanthropy has called uh, black people. I never viewed it as charitable. I remember the first time my, um, my parents ever got a box on their door of clothing from a, a well-to-do family uh, that wanted to give back to us. And I went into the box of, of the clothing and I was so excited because there was there was some dope clothing in there. I was like, this is gonna be amazing. Uh, and I remember trying to put it on and my mom slapped me across the face. Uh, and she said, put that back in the box and put that box back where it came from. We do not take charity. Um, and it was a feeling of, I work every single day. I work 36 hours a day and if I can't afford to give my children clothing or food, I don't need turkey giveaways. I want enough damn money to afford a turkey. And so I, I, my view on charity is one of a person who has already rejected it from a really young age. Uh -huh. um, and as a student of history, what you have to look at is when you look at COVID-19, it, it's a disease that is disproportionately affecting black bodies. And I didn't hear that from the news. I heard it from my partner who's an emergency physician who called me crying on the phone saying the emergency room and the ICU is packed with black women. And I have never seen this before in my life. Uh, it is packed, not the emergency room, the ICU, meaning the people who are going to die look a very specific way. Um, and that is unusual. Um, and so 
when I saw that, the first thing I started to think about when you're an executive director of a nonprofit organization, the first people you think about is your community and your team. You don't really care about what other people think about you, what are, what's going on. You call your team. Are you okay? And I had staff, I had community members, I had friends who were hurting and scared. Like, am I going to end up in the emergency room? What does this mean uh, for me? And so immediately, I started to reach out to these philanthropic institutions who are meant to protect uh, and repair, uh, especially in moments like this, to say, this is a disease that is absolutely going to impact Black bodies. We have known that Atlanta is already set up uh, to fail Black people. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do in this moment to make sure that this isn't yet another thing Black families are going to have to persevere from. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't an academic argument. This was a, I'm thinking about the people I love argument, and I don't know how to help them argument because I don't have enough money to do it myself. Um, and I got radio silence for months on this. Uh, and then I started to watch money start to go out. And when money started to go out, I watched it go to the same institutional things that it's gone to for years and years and years. And we can make the argument that institutional things are the things you have to put money into first because they're stable, they have higher reach, they, they, they can get into more communities. But truth is what, what a lot of communities needed and had already were black leaders ready and prepared to take care of themselves, but they were fighting for scraps of resources to be able to do it and had to be dependent on these institutional places in order to be able to survive. So the last thing I'll say on the COVID-19 fund, which is what you, you, you asked about, is we did an evaluation of where do dollars go during crisis? And they go to large institutional, white-led, male-led organizations. And that is because of a proximity to the dollars that there are network effects that happen. They can pick up the phone and say, yo, I need these dollars here. That also has to do with that these organizations well before crisis are better prepared, um, meaning that they were given more money during the times when there wasn't a crisis to have assets. Um, do you have, you have organizations with hundreds of millions of dollars of assets. In the 321 organizations that were awarded capital in Atlanta, you had 76% of those, 74% of those organizations were white-led and not a single white-led organization, male-led, white-led organization had debt on their, or on their uh, companies. Yet we had black-led organizations with multi-million dollars of debt on their companies. We're setting up black organizations to fail from the beginning. So this wasn't to call out COVID-19 response. That would be silly. Uh, it was to show that even in a time of crisis, when we know that something affects black people and you have intentional black people, like black leaders putting practices and, and procedures in place to actually account for equity, even with that effort, you could not break 400 years of systems that have continued to fail people in the first place. And so uh, we gotta do better. Philanthropy has to do better. It's, it's a broken system that is designed for someone that doesn't look like anyone on this panel. And it's killing people. Yeah, directly. What is the, I mean, I think this is, a. first of all, thank you um, to all of you. Um, I am a native of this lovely city um, in this region. And I'm often heartbroken at the way we have responded collectively to folks that look just like me, um, that I've grown up with. 
um, my family, um, you know, um, my personally speaking, both of my parents had COVID. Um, it was, it's very personal to me in terms of the healthcare response in this moment. And, you know, by the grace, they, they are um, not only doing well, they, they're in a position to do well. Um, and I know that that is not the case for so many families. And we are, we are still dealing with um, a pandemic. We are on a Zoom situation right now. Um, and so it's very much the realities um, of our day to day. I, I, but we are dealing on top of this. We are dealing in a time of, 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 a, of an opportunity to do our work differently, to show up differently, to, to voice things that we've never been able to voice confidently. We've been able to voice them quietly in certain rooms and corners, and I can speak for myself in that way. But now I think the, 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 the microphone is now a megaphone and we can really um, hold people accountable. Heather, you've been able to do this in ways that I think not just call it out, but help and lead how this sector can do things differently. Can you, not just the mechanics, but like the relationships and how you went about that, how did it impact you on um, holding a, a major institution accountable, but also thinking through well, what is the solutions and how you brought others into that conversation? So Tanae is, is referencing a call out I made back in May to the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, which is one of our larger philanthropic institutions here in Atlanta. And they did a specific round of emergency funding for the arts and culture community. And in that first round of funding, they um, neglected to include any black organizations in, in that initial round of funding. And at that point in May, to um, Rohit's point, we were well aware of the impact that COVID was having disproportionately on Black communities. And so, you know, the call out really didn't come as part of any intention to advocate for change in response to this. It was really just to express a, a growing frustration that the pandemic was definitely um, you know, helping to fester in a lot of us, right? And a week after that initial call out, we would learn about um, George Floyd and our cities would erupt in violence and there would be subsequent uh, examples of black lives being um, murdered uh, very publicly in broad daylight. And so it just became like, how could I not speak up, right? Particularly when there were so many of my colleagues and peers that were quietly reaching out to me by email, over the phone, and sharing their experiences, and not just sharing their experiences as an organization, but the impact that this was having on them personally. I think what philanthropy tends to neglect, particularly when we're dealing with Black communities, um, is just the ongoing sort of messaging that we get that continues to devalue our lives, our intelligence, our competence, and we internalize that. So. Philanthropy makes a huge statement in the folks that they support, but they also make a big statement in those that they don't. And that stuff weighs on people. And because organizations aren't supported and funded and valued and held up, 
these folks are doing, you know, they're, they're really struggling to make ends meet and it's impacting their ability to support themselves and to support the people that they are responsible for. So how could I not? And it comes at uh, a great risk to speak out in a place like Atlanta where institutions really insulate themselves from any kind of critique at all. We don't value dialogue and discourse. We don't value disruption or agitation. We silence it, right? And that's what initially happened in this situation when I did the initial call out, the Community Foundation did their, you know, sort of like sterile statement saying like, we invite and are inclusive of everybody. That was the initial response. There was no accountability. There was no acknowledgement of like, yes, you're right. There, we did neglect to include some black organizations. And I would say it is only because of the pandemic, it is only because of Black Lives Matter that we found ourselves in a moment where they could not deny us. They couldn't. This was just not the moment to be on the wrong side of this moment. And the Community Foundation themselves found themselves like so many other institutions and companies having to uh, put out some sort of statement of solidarity that explicitly lifted up Black, not POC, not BIPOC, whatever those terms are. Like they had to talk about Black Atlantans and they did so. And so that became the, the opportunity to leverage, um, to use race really, to leverage an advocacy effort that would bring them to their knees in the kind of way that would move money that has never been moved before. And over the course of three months, you know, galvanizing the community to be this sort of unified voice in this effort, calling on particular allies to sort of quietly weigh in and influence and provide pressure where I knew the, the community foundation had to be responsive so that at the end of the three months, we could arrive at a million dollars plus now being redirected to black organizations, which many of whom had never received not a dollar from the community foundation, not one red cent. You know, Heather, <clears throat> this brings to light a few things. Atlanta is really a microcosm of the rest of the world, to be honest with you. We are seeing um, across the country philanthropy having to respond differently and get super uncomfortable, um, which is great. And, but we're also seeing, you know, institutional nonprofits as well, larger, all of us think differently. And I don't want to, and I'm, and I'm going to talk to Janelle about this, what she's seeing just at the Federal Reserve and coming from a national foundation prior to that work. But what I'm seeing in my seat is that the conditions in Atlanta actually are, um, look very similar in, in other cities. And, you know, I was on a call with folks in Cali um, and on, on meeting with folks in Chicago, meeting with folks in New York, but also in um, other parts of the South that are really challenged with how to do their work differently. Um, the Southern experience here around um, racism and classism is not unique. It is, it is something that while it may look different in other places, the underlying conditions of white supremacy plague philanthropy in general. And that I think whether it's, I was on a call with the with the foundation in um, was Indianapolis or I can't remember right now. And they were lifting up a fund um, in response to COVID and they were getting extreme backlash. And they, the leader did not know why. He was like, well, you know, I have my African-American um, leader leading this fund and the community feels like um, this person is co-opting 
their strategy and um, they don't feel heard. And I'm just really confused. Can you guys help me through this? And maybe it was the different set of funders that day on the call, you know, folks may, I don't know, they went in and the, the conversation really settled on, well, are you being, are you co-opting? How is your, how is your black leader positioned in that particular community? And why is it the single black leader positioned in the community and not the institution? And why not allow the community to lead on a response? And why not you play support role in the backup? Um, and who at that table is involved in your strategy? And so we've got to think through, and this was a pretty, you know, this wasn't a Southern city. This was a city that is, um, you know, um, somewhat progressive. And I think that we've got to think through, even in our most progressive and best ways, how do we, um, practice and the dangerousness of progressive white leadership thinking that because you have black leadership in your organization that that black leader is proximate to the issues that affect not just the black or brown community but from a class perspective what is their relationship have you interrogated that or on, or are we positioning symbolic leaders um in the face of philanthropy to do that work and i think that is and are you listening to the black and brown leaders in the shifts and changes because there are a lot of black, brown, white women all across the board that are proximate that are not being heard. And what does that trauma look like in the midst of all what's going on? And how does that show up in, in your work? And are you doing the hard work of being uncomfortable and getting that information and listening and then responding to what you're hearing? So I'll, I'll, I'll pivot to Janelle to say like, Janelle, from what you're seeing across the South, your, your portfolios across the South, you've seen things nationally. Um, talk to us about kind of like how this work and how we can think through um, this conversation more broadly and the narratives that we put in place. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, and you know, I would remiss be remiss if I didn't say like the views I'm expressing on this panel are my own. They are not the views of the Federal Reserve Bank. And I, I wanted to make sure I plug that in. And I think that's really important to plug in, not as a just a soundbite, but you know, what is our civic responsibility here? And just, you know, the humanity of this moment. What is what is our ident our collective identity? Um, at this moment, like I am struggling on the heels of this Breonna, Breonna Taylor's verdict while raising a nine-year-old girl asking me if it's safe to call the police to our home if there is fear. And that is something that I have to reconcile and other Black mothers have to reconcile while we still have to show up in professional spaces and move a necessary agenda. And I say that as we think about um, Black and people of color uh, that are in spaces that are asked to lead discussions, it's a very difficult space um, because we also are um, having to not just reconcile these roles, but we're also having in 2020 to negotiate our humanity. And so I think it's really important to just like put that out there and, and acknowledge that. Um, you know, when we think about what's happening in COVID, we absolutely see, um, you know, Rohit spoke about it earlier, this, this, this is a pandemic. We're seeing disproportionate impacts on black bodies. 
Um, you know, I think when we looked at some of the top states that had at least 50% cases, many of them were in the South. So, so that is clear. And then there's an economic impact, right? When we saw um, within a few weeks in this pandemic, 41% of Black businesses saw their business plummet, 41%. And when we dig deeper to try to figure out what's going on, many of these businesses are represented in, overrepresented in uh, hottest hit industries. They're represented in accommodation and food services, retail trade. So what COVID is simply doing is magnifying how broken this monopoly board is, right? And it's simply just exposing that we are operating in systems that have not been included. And so, you know, nationally, I think the discourse that really needs to happen and the policy conversations that need to occur is really around how structural racism continues to constrain our economy and our community. Like there, there is a cost to this. And this cost is not only um, experienced by Black people and people of color. This actually undermines our collective our, uh, our economy and our, uh, our uh, society overall. Um, and so I think that is, that is something really important to lift up. Um, I think when we think about solutions, we've had you know, a conversation today around philanthropy and there's a great book around the legitimacy of philanthropy. And to Heather's point, like philanthropy was not naturally designed to really um, eradicate itself. It wasn't really designed to lead King's charge, to undo the conditions that necessitate its existence. And so we have to really reimagine what does philanthropy look like, right? And so what does that mean by holding these institutions accountable? But what does it mean around, as we think about co-op economics, what does co-op philanthropy mean? And co-op philanthropy has actually been practiced in black and brown communities for centuries. It's actually not new. It's how I was able to go to college. People got together and say, I'm going to pay for your plane ticket so you could enter those doors, right? So how do we um, take that and scale the practices? When we think about black and brown people and how they give within their community, those are valid, tangible, and necessary practices that do not restrict themselves to these traditional philanthropic lines. And then I think there's also an important conversation around organizing democracy and economic power and freedom. And those pieces are really important. When we think about the state of Georgia, 90% of people in the state of Georgia at the time of arrest live below federal poverty level. And we all know federal poverty level are very conservative guidelines. This is a deep, deep issue. When we think about the connection between race, poverty, and how these systems are perpetuated to keep people locked out, it's real. So what does it mean around really transforming the way we think about um, allowing people not just to join an economic mainstream, but reimagine new economic models? And I think that that's the space that we really have to um, really feed our action and our investments in. I am so excited by the work that you know, Heather and Rohit inspires because we need a revolution. We need a revolution of thinking um, to really transform, you know, how we've been wedded to these traditional practices that have not worked for people of color, that have not worked for black and brown people, that have not been designed to work for black and brown people in, 
in this country. And so I, I think as we think about organizing and organizing not only around you know, a policy perspective, but what it means around organizing our dollars to invest in businesses, in places, in strategies that believe in black and brown bodies, that becomes a game changer. And I think that should be a strategy that is not permission-based. That is a strategy that we have the authority to start doing and doing it well collectively. Um, and, and there's some bodies of that happening in different parts of the country, really interesting work. Um, and I think the opportunity for us to think about connecting these different actors and really exploring what that means at scale is really important. But this is, this is a, an opportunity moment. This is a time for this country to answer the call, who are you? And once and for all, solve their, our identity crisis. So I'm glad you brought that up because I want to open this up to another piece of the of the conversation, which is, so we tend to think about race in these binary black white situations like you know there's and then even within that we know those aren't, you know, homogeneous. Um, we know that people of colors this like broad thing that we do where that's Asian, that's Latinx, that's everybody in between. There's all these identities um, that we don't get to hold in the conversation or we, or those communities are struggling to figure out like, well, what, what is their strategy? How, what is the solution? How do I help participate in a problem um, or in the solution? Rohit, you talked about this earlier with you being you know, with your family and being Asian and what does that mean and how does that show up? Um, you and I joke about it in some ways. Um, Heather being that, you know, Janelle, Trinidad, Heather, your family being Jamaican, all these things, like where do you fit in this conversation? And so how do we, how do we um, invite, and we don't have any Latinx voices in this particular conversation. And I wanna highlight that as well. Um, but even within the Latinx community, there's so much diversity. Yeah. So how do we open this conversation up around equity, inclusion, justice, knowing that there's so many voices being not just left out, but don't even know how to get in. Um, so can we just talk about that just as a group? Feel yeah. free to weigh in. I know that's I something wanna, I'm holding. I just want to jump in really quick on this. And I know Rohit and Heather will like take it across the scoreboard much better. But I just want to say... I think it's really important we have multiracial um, coalitions. That's really important. What I think is missed too often is that we don't create the framework for this work on anti-Blackness. Anti-Blackness is real. And when we miss that step, what we see is that it, it becomes a staggered game where it's diluted into the pursuit of whiteness and then we then what emerges is like, well, who's the model minority, right? Which has happened. And we then trade and swap positions around tokens, um, around access and proxy to power. So I think it's really important. We have these inclusive tables and these tables need to be deeply rooted in anti-Blackness. Heather Rohit, I pass the ball to you. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's funny uh, when when you bring uh, a number of Asian American uh, leaders together too. Uh, you know, this is something that we've silently cried in in our own cars about too. We we 
we didn't call ourselves a model minority. You know, again, we are defined by uh, what what white people get to call us, uh, what they, how they position us. My parents didn't come to this country, uh, you know, with an understanding of of race, but it was very clear uh, what they were supposed to do in this country, which was to behave as close to a white man as possible to achieve success. And when you are an immigrant in this country, that's the choice you're told. And so anti-blackness shows up as in, you're trying to do everything uh, so that you don't get treated like a black person gets treated by white people. That's the immigrant journey um, in America. That's the American dream is to not be treated black. And that is uh, the greatest thing that we are challenged with um, because when you are not black or not white, one, you don't understand black experience, but you also don't understand white experience. And there's an erasure of your own experience in that and kind of a choice that you have to make do you decide that you want to be black today or white today? Who are you going to set today? Um, you know, I've had, when I spoke out uh, uh, on the fact that over the past six years of, of doing this work, I have realized that I can no longer move forward until we address uh, some of these rooted issues. I have the privilege of learning from and working with so many black women uh, in Atlanta uh, and to realize that their pain and trauma has been used. Um, and in some ways, uh, that I was complicit in that, uh, that I actually encouraged it in a, in a way, um, was, uh, it, it's so, it's so tough to sit with that, uh, because you want to speak up for black women, but not for black women. Um, and it is a fine balance that you need to, you need to, you need to know your lane and you, but you also got to be told your lane, right? Because we're not taught black history. We're not taught these things. You have to go out of your way to learn the beauty of, of black history. Um, I, I will say though, that what you learn though on the outside is that this is all by design. Every single person except a straight white male has had to be amended into the constitution of the United States to be considered valuable or to be considered a human being, every single person. And so at the end of the day, you can get into oppression Olympics all day long. Um, but there, one truth is, is that if you actually do make an investment in the one group that has been identified and erased and actually made lesser than whole, uh, if you actually repair that, all boats rise with the tide. Um, and so I, I just, this, all of this stuff is by design. We could talk all day we want about philanthropy, but the money we're talking about with philanthropy, that's 5% of what they're actually giving away. There's $12 billion, the top 25 families in Atlanta hold $12 billion, billion dollars, which is almost five times the reserves of the state of Georgia. 25 families who have Thanksgiving together get to decide where $12 billion get invested and they take 5% of it and they give it away as charity. The rest sits and it accrues interest. It gets invested in private prisons. It gets invested in fossil fuels. It gets invested in everything that is hurting black and brown bodies. And then they get to say, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Here's my $1 million donation. As if we're supposed to forget about the other 12 billion that is actually making it so that black lives will never matter. And so I, I just, I think we ha we're having the wrong, we're getting distracted by tools. Yeah. I've gotten so many emails and responses from white people saying, so I guess what I did doesn't matter then. I guess the good that I do in the world just doesn't doesn't really, I guess I, I just put my entire career into social service. No, 
dude. You should you you should not have a job. None of us should be doing this. We shouldn't be having a conversation about equity in 2020. We are having a panel about equity in 2020. And there are people who have careers and are making six figures trying to talk about and solve poverty. This is insane. Shame on this country if that's how what we've become. And it's why everybody's trying to figure out how dual citizenship works right now, because this country has become a failed experiment. And so I think it needs a revolution and it needs a, a, a redo. Um, but we got to give grace while we're doing it. That's just a, I'm not perfect. I have messed up so many times with people on this call. I have messed up. I have to correct for that. Um, but I, but I think we also have to remember what it is that we're fighting for, <laughs> that we're all on the same page, that this is, this is a failed experiment. America is not working. Uh, we we, we got to try again. Heather. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So many things, so many things. I mean, I can speak to that immigrant experience. My um, parents immigrated to Canada, Toronto, where I grew up did my formative schooling. So to come to the United States, to come to Atlanta, okay, in the 90s as a black person was an extraordinary experience because where I came, where I grew up and, and where I came from, we're a multicultural society, not without fault, but we're a multicultural society that embraces people's ethnic traditions and culture. When you come to the United States, it becomes abundantly clear from the onset that you must choose. You must choose where you fall in this white black continuum. And even as a black person, the kind of black person that you are is also a choice that you have to make. And the way that you are celebrated when you choose a, a, a type of black identity that skews more to the white is how you are able to find success. And that is a particular type of racism that exists, this way in which certain black folks can exceptionalize themselves. Like to Tanae's point earlier on, the Community Foundation has five black people on the board of directors, yet and still money can go out the door and no black organization can receive the funding. So there's something fundamentally wrong there. And to this um, whole thing about philanthropy is um, failing and that you know America is a broken system is just so true, like from the onset. And I think for the folks that are listening, for the reporters and the journalists that are telling this story, like follow the money. Like to Rohit's point, yeah, we're getting distracted by all this equity race talk when this is a this is an issue of capitalism, right? And exploitation. So just follow the, the money. Don't, don't, don't get a testimonial anymore from black people about how they're traumatized and suffering. Like we're clear about that, right? We don't need any more uh, accounts of what's going on in communities. We need to go to the leaders of these institutions, our elected officials, and say, how do you sleep at night knowing that the policies that you have put forth have created this? Explain yourself and put wanted posters in every single community to let people know, watch out, because these are some bad malicious motherfuckers out here, and we need to indict them. Like The, the court of public opinion right now is really powerful in sort of bringing to justice these issues. And we need our communicators to shift the conversation in the right direction and not be persuaded by pain and suffering, right? We need to begin to identify and hold accountable the culprits that are behind this criminal activity, which is nothing short of criminal activity. 
it has done and is continuing to do harm. And it won't stop unless we begin to hold people to what they're doing. So I'm sitting with two questions that are that are coming our way, and I'm trying to to figure out how to ask these two questions. One, anytime I do these panels, there's always a um, need to highlight the glimmer of light, to highlight what is working. Um, I'm I'm not hesitant to ask the question of what is working. But I'm, I'm hesitant to ask what is working and also ask the question of what role in this group, because of we're at Comnet, <laughs> what role does our, what role um, do our professional communicators play in this? Because I have experienced a few things. I've experienced the need to over highlight what seemingly is success as a way to hide the dysfunction um, and I've also seen where black and brown people particularly are being exploited in a need to highlight the success, the glimmer of hope. So I want us to talk about how do we hold both to be true? Because there are, there's some amazing work happening that does not get highlighted, but how do we highlight that work without exploiting, um, folks that do this work every day? So What's the role of professional communicators in this conversation? And then what's working? <laughs> so I'll start with Rohit or Heather um, because of your proximity to the to the day-to-day -day, and then maybe Janelle can weigh in around the broader space of, of how we're communicating our messages. But talk, yeah. to our, talk to these folks that are professional communicators every day. Yeah, I, I want to start with the fact that don't confuse this as anything but love for Atlanta. Um, we we unapologetically and desperately love Atlanta. Yes, yes. Uh, we 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 love it so much that we've dedicated our entire lives to trying to make it better. Uh, we have been in rooms where we have cried together over this stuff. We have been in rooms where we have laughed together. There is joy in justice work um, because I you know as the the late John Lewis you know, taught me, I, it was a, you got to dance sometimes and you got to, you got to let loose sometimes. But Atlanta hip hop, the reason it's better than that hip hop anywhere else in the country is because uh -oh. actually, it actually talks about experience in a way that highlights its conflictedness. The reason Andre 3000 uh, will take on anybody else um, is because he can tell you what it's like to live in Atlanta and feel a sense of of joy and excellence, while also a, a, a unwillingness to participate in a system that uh, doesn't believe he matters, while also raising an award up high and saying the South's got something to say. That's Atlanta, and we're so damn proud of it. And that authenticity is in our blood and in 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 what we do. To the fact where an Indian immigrant kid can come to a city and feel accepted. That's what's beautiful. And you can't get that everywhere else. Um, and so I want to start with like, if, if there's, let's not shake the fact that we are having this conversation because we, we believe in Atlanta's potential to be get better and we haven't destroyed it yet to a point where it can't recover. Um, the, the second thing is I come from the communication space. I worked, uh, I worked for President Barack Obama when we were on the, on the ground. And I, was, I got to play uh, President Obama on, on Twitter and Facebook in a previous career. And what was amazing about that experience was 
we went into communities that had never ever had a politician or anyone come and talk to people and not go in and say, you need to vote for somebody, but instead to say, what's going on in your life? What is happening with your healthcare? What is going on uh, in your day to day? But the problem was after he was elected, we never went back to those communities. And the problem with liberal thought on this and the conservative thought is we put things in a binary of good versus bad or red versus blue, but we live in a city that is democratic, but believes in trickle down economics. We go door to door uh, to people when there are ribbon cuttings and when there are uh, opportunities for elections, uh, but not when those camera lights go off. And so really we need to start having the conversation for communicators. It's about having the conversation when it's not sexy. Um, mm. We should be talking about and highlighting black women uh, when they're not a hashtag. Uh, there's, a, there's a real need for us to tell the stories and to not just tell the stories, but let black women tell their own stories so that people like me shouldn't, be, shouldn't have to be positioned to say, I need to speak up um, because you're not gonna give the light of day to a black woman to actually tell her own experience. And that's a shame and I think a, a, a shortcoming in communications we've had is we have not given a microphone and a platform uh, to, pe to black people who are doing the work and we kind of tokenize other people to speak for them, um, which puts those individuals in a, in a bad position. And the last thing I'll say is that know that this work is surviving in spite of all of this. We are hopeful because even in spite of these systems that are in place, people are thriving. You don't want to put a grocery store in that community? No problem. Four farmers are going to make sure every single person eats um, and they're going to make sure it's, you don't want to take care of the school in that community? Great. People are going to go door to door, making sure that every single person has the, the, the training and tutoring that they need. So I think Atlanta shows what happens uh, when you're resilient uh, in spite of systems working against you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in a lot of ways. Very good, very good. Um, um, I, Heather, Janelle, did you guys wanna to respond to, to Rohit or? Really quickly, I'll just jump in and say, you know, we need a narrative shift. So many times when we talk about race, it's done through a deficit lens and we need a narrative shift where we have conversations around what are the assets in these communities. And we don't need more people really agonizing and um, glorifying data points. We need people really writing exposés on extractive practices. That's what we need. And I think if we marry an asset-based lens with some expose research to, ex to really be able to say, these are the root causes that are contributing to these outcomes. That becomes a deal breaker. Communication is powerful. Communication is messaging. Communication is an organizing tool. And we need to shift the way we've had these conversations where we really start focusing on some of the causes and a path forward. And like the, the fact that like the uplifting black narrative and, and highlighting and, and supporting and rejoicing over those things should not be viewed as anti-whiteness. Uh, you should not feel threatened by that. You should feel like, why am I not doing more of that? I think the only thing that I would add is I think as communicators, we have to be always cognizant of the fact that language, the way we talk about things, how we name things, that is the first line of violence. 
That is how we have articulated these systems and that we have marginalized communities and we have put people in their place. It is through the words that we have chosen and the meanings that we have assigned to it. So when we are not intentional, we're not, when we're not deliberate about telling a story other than the one that has been told, then we are just perpetuating that same violence. And so I would challenge people to begin telling stories that are not centered around whiteness, to tell stories as if white folks didn't exist. And what would you say now? How would you say it if that wasn't the audience, if that wasn't the sweet spot of the culture? How would you articulate these things to them? Very good. What if we told the stories as if whiteness was not centered in the narrative? I'm, I think that's some that's some interesting work for our communicators to 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 dig into um, across many issues. I think we have centered. Um, systemic whiteness and how we do our work. I'm thinking across some of the other areas that I touch on, whether it's education and housing and, you know, transit, how we move, how we talk, how we educate. Um, and um, the, the notion of language has been a line of violence is, is very powerful. Images, um, we're seeing the power of, of the video being, you know, um, um, and how, how storytelling has now been being shifted based on who holds the camera. And um, I think that's just a very powerful way of how we're, we, we no longer can ignore um, what's right in front of us. This was a tactic of the civil rights movement. Um, this has always been a, a way, it's, it's really um, very powerful when people can hold their own camera, can hold their own pen, can have their own megaphone, can have their own platform and the audience is listening. Um, that's the other thing that I think is important. Um, I, you know, we've talked a lot about the Southern perspective and as we close out, you know, we have, we have people from across the country on this call and, you know, we know that, you know, the, the South is, is great for its transparency and its racism and classism. Um, that's one thing I'll give us credit for. Um, we don't try to hide it. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing those dog whistles happen nationally and, um, and just, you know, I just want you guys to kind of close us out in certain ways, thinking through, is the Southern experience um, where racism and classism live more transparent on the surface? And But what does that mean for us to overcome that in non-Southern cities across the, across the country? Um, give us some perspective on that. How, how can other folks tackle what might not be as visible as what we see here? So I'll start with um, maybe Heather, because I think her highlight around the, the violence of, of language is really is really key in how we do that. We're seeing, you know, Seattle, you know, we're seeing it in, you know, the West Coast where we think like, oh, there's a there's a certain sentiment there. Um, talk to us about that. But for these communicators, even more so, how does how does that show up in their work? What's the way that equity can show up in their work differently across yeah, the country? And, and this is the challenge, like this is both the challenge and the opportunity of Atlanta because, you know, it, it is that black Mecca in some ways, it is that Wakanda, you know, to, to Rohit's point about like, we love this city, Atlanta enveloped me in a way and showed me who I was in ways that, you know, traveling to Jamaica couldn't show me, being, you know, in Toronto couldn't show me, it, 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 it brought the diaspora full circle to me, it, it showed me a history um, 
and it and it opened up opportunities for me to participate and contribute. And we have a unique opportunity. Like if we don't get it right in Atlanta, I don't know how other cities are going to fare in this work um, because of the way that we're uniquely positioned and because of our history of, of civil rights and, and being um, a dominant um, economic force for the Southern Southeast region. I think it's just, I mean, for me, it's just more of what I've been saying about how we tell the story and where we um, shift the focus, right? And looking at equity as not diversity, not inclusion, because I think sometimes we think about, we sort of conflate equity with representation and this uh, larger table for which we're pulling up many more seats. And I think, you know, as I imagine equity, as I imagine this work, it is really coming to terms that we've got to prioritize Black folks. We've got to prioritize the needs of Black folks at the expense of other people in a lot of ways because of what is owed to them in terms of um, the opportunities that they have been intentionally denied despite the enormous contribution that they've had to every single facet of our society from our capitalist model to rap music, right? We are sort of leading uh, in every aspect of, of society. And so we've got to really help to reinforce that that priority is necessary and that when, we, when, when black folks are doing well, everybody is doing well. And it is only our racist leanings um, that have shaped and informed values and perspectives that are completely you know, arbitrary and constructed. It is only when we confront those things that we can begin to find the kind of truth and transformation that this moment denies. And I think what America in its history has shown us that when we resist change, we will erupt in violence. There has never been a moment in our history where when the people are pushing for something other than what has been, it has been through violence that we have come to make that shift. And so that is, I mean, I think the opportunity or the challenge that lays before us, um, or we can, you know, find it within ourselves to do the kind of work that is required to um, uphold to ourselves to the heal and to uphold ourselves to the ideals that will make us better than we are. I will say that we have about three minutes left. Um, I want to give a minute to Rohit. Thank you, Heather um, and Janelle. Um, any parting words for this audience? And then I'll close this out. Um, with my minute. <laughs> um, so I'll start with Rohit, Janelle, and then I'll, I'll close this out. Thanks, Janae. Um, I, I just wrote down four words so I can be brief. The, the, the first word I wrote is empathy. Uh, I think that we need to bring that back. I think we need to make sure that people are uh, grieving with the same symbolic grief for Breonna Taylor as they did an 87 year old woman like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, I think that uh, there is a need for us to make sure that we uh, we see that uh, Breonna Taylor um, is a reflection of the worst uh, part of, um, of America, but also the greatest lost potential uh, that this country had. Um, and until we start looking at it in that way, I think we're going to um, 
continue to create hashtags out of people rather than actually holding them to their greatness and to um, and to what we lost uh, fr from them. I also think the second word I wrote down was joy, um, that I think that there is joy in this and there's uh, a need for us to reassert joy and to create room for joy uh, and rest uh, and, and making sure that uh, you we are not vilifying people for finding uh, those moments of joy. The third thing I wrote down was grace. Um, I think that uh, people are going to make a lot of mistakes along this journey. I know a lot of executive directors who uh, lead these types of efforts or lead these types of movements who uh, are broken right now um, and don't know where to go from here. Uh, and they need help and they need support. But then most importantly, I think they need grace uh, to know that they got to keep showing up for for what is going to inevitably be a fight. And the last word I wrote down was, was trust. Um, I think that all of this has a uh, semblance of we don't trust uh, one another anymore. Uh, and we don't trust these systems to work for us. We don't trust people who go into political power and trust is only built by the first three things that I mentioned. Uh, but I think that uh, that should be our goal and our, our uh, what we're shooting for is to, to build trust again so that we- yeah. uh, Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Janelle. And, um you know, I'll just end with three things as well. Um, you know, police brutality that we're witnessing now is just our contemporary strange fruit. And we need to peel the onions to really look at the intersection of these systems that have facilitated state-sanctioned violence. We need to really go beyond a police brutality, criminal justice reform conversation and have a deeper conversation of how these systems interact to completely negate black lives. And the third thing is, as we heal and as we think about a path forward, we have to invest. We have to invest in these communities. We have to invest in places and people that were complete, completely and continuously brutalized and replace it with an infrastructure around rebuilding. And we do that through not just you know the narratives of upskilling and workforce training, but we do this through a lens where we reimagine new models where everyone has an opportunity to contribute and participate. But we need investments. And without reform, without investment, without having some radical imagination, as we think about what it means to really have a functional civic society, we will continue to wrestle with the great question, who is America? Okay, so thank you all so much, Heather, Rohit, Janelle. What a powerful conversation. I'm privileged to even be a part of it. Thank you all so much. Um, I wanna thank Sean and the ComNet team um, as we, as we you know, um, have this conversation. I know it's timely and it's appropriate but it's, it's necessary. So thank y'all so much. I'll just end with one quote that we hear often um, as the son of Atlanta, we always quote Martin Luther King. And I just think it's important for us to not just romanticize King, but understand the, the, the revolutionary, the soldier that this man was. And, and he didn't give, he, he, he shifted his narrative as well. And I think it's important for us to understand that he, he, he evolved as a leader and his, his fight became very um, revolutionary in how he decided to, to move his work. 
So I'll just end with his quote that we we often talk about, but I think it's important to, to understand this, particularly as communicators, that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. As you send your messages and representing your organizations, always remember that you are also signaling um, to the rest of the world about how you show up um, as an institution and your leadership shows up out into the community that it is serving. Thank y'all so much um, for joining us today. Um, you guys are amazing. Um, y'all have a beautiful, beautiful Friday and great rest of the conference. Bye. Bye. Bye.